You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. This is episode number 25. Episode number 25 is brought to you by Word Domination, the upcoming game from Uproarious Games. It combines wordplay with area control for a completely new experience. Watch for it on Kickstarter, August 23rd. All right, with me today I have a special guest. This is Jamie Twist, the founder of Bipartisan Games and the co-creator of Race to the White House. Jamie, welcome to your Tables on Fire. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. We're glad you're here. Uh, can you take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I've been playing games for as long as I can remember. I grew up in the – I was born in 1975, so I really grew up in the 80s uh, from, a, from a gamer standpoint. So like many of us, I started on, you know, your classic kind of family – uh, four players, ages eight and up type games, you know, your Parker Brothers, Careers, The Game of Life, Sorry, that sort of thing, you know, playing with my my family and my friends. And then I remember for my ninth birthday, you know, my parents gave me the original Red Box uh, Dungeons and Dragons basic rules set. And so that took me... What, your parents gave it to you? Yeah, I think I think they don't... I don't, don't think they That's really... pretty knew. radical, you know, I mean, because back then, of course, D&D was like, hey, you're worshiping Satan if you're playing... Yeah, well, look, and that's what knocked my life horribly off course, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> I've uh, really never recovered from, uh, you know, from, 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 from the blow. Look, I, I don't think they really knew what they were giving me, to be honest. Oh, they said, kids like Dungeons and Dragons, so <laughs> it was that or another pair of socks, I guess. So they gave me the Red Box D&D, and so I, I disappeared into that world for a few years. And then at roughly the same time, I also started getting into those old, and this is going to you know, date me a little bit, those old kind of hexagon and cardboard counter war games, you know, your Avalon Hills, your simulation publications, uh, you know, those games, D-Day, Africa Core, the ones where you have to leave it set up for eight months and you just pray that the dog doesn't knock 400 <laughs> panzer divisions onto the, onto the carpet and, and, and eat them. So I, I proceeded down both those tracks. Uh, you know, for me, Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games, which I also played, they're always very social. Uh, you know, those games are about other people. And then war games. To be honest, it was it, well, it's never been a very liquid market, right? So people used to advertise in the back of newspapers for people to play, you know, war games with, which. In retrospect, oh, it kind of feels pretty sad now when I think about it. But, uh, you know, they have these little, you know, three lines, you know. Seattle area, 14-year-old, seeking opponents for Africa Corps or anything, I think was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, one of the ads that I put in for $4 in the back of, uh, you know, a gamer magazine. And did that work? Uh, yeah, occasionally. I think, um, you know, to this day, it's a fairly odd little subculture of people who play those games. And obviously, those games have pretty much fallen by the wayside. Uh, mm -hmm. Turns out computers can keep better track of, you know, 400 uh, divisions on the Eastern Front than, uh, you know, people with, with lots of cardboard counters. Right. So, so I played both those games. Well, indeed, I both those categories of games. I guess Dungeons and Dragons has fallen by the wayside a bit. But, you know, I've got those hexagon games in my, in my closet as we speak. And then, you know, I think there was a real renaissance in gaming sort of in the 90s. You know, I, I think a couple of things happened. Obviously, uh, personal computers... 
just opened up a whole new field of play, both in terms of you know arcade games and shoot 'em ups, but also strategic play, that kind of intense, detail-oriented game uh, sort of game. Um, so computers pulled us in one direction there. And then, as as you know uh, better than anyone, I think the mid late '90s when we started to see the tabletop game really come back into its own. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I think the internet's been a big part of that, just because you can find out about this stuff. So I think that stuff's been around for a while, especially continental Europe. You know, German games and people would buy these things, and you know, the instructions would be in German, and they'd you know, be shipped from overseas, and it'd take four months to get there, and you never really knew what you were getting. But uh, I got into those games in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, after after the wargaming era was kind of coming to a close. And so I played, you know, played a lot of the original Civilization, for example. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Steve Jackson games, which is a slightly different category, I guess. You know, Car Wars and Ogre and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And look, really, that's um, that's carried me right through to the present day. So I still play, you know, those old Avalon Hill and... Uh, and SPI games. Um, I play obviously a ton of tabletop games uh, now, and a little bit on the the video game front, although it's kind of a different genre. Um, and I don't. I, I like the tactile feel of a of a good tabletop game. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my gaming history in a nutshell. So what are your tastes now? You still dig out the big. You know, eighty pound yeah, war game. Or? Look, I'll, I'll I'll dig them out occasionally. It's usually when I feel like I've stored up a lot of marital credit with my wife. She's <laughs> she's willing to tolerate you know the dining room table kind of being uh, out of action for for, for for two to three weeks. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll dig those out occasionally. Uh, look, to me, games have always fallen into two categories. There there are two player games which are really all about mechanics and optimizing within a set of rules and kind of applies to, to my OCD streak really, really nicely. And so um, there I like the really, I, I like complex games with rich play. And so I think, you know, Twilight Struggle or We the People or 1960 or Paths of Glory, those, those sorts of uh, games where it really takes a long time to learn how to play well. Uh, and to be honest, I ended up playing most of those games by myself um, because I'm terrible company when I'm playing them, I've been told. So that's one category. And then multiplayer games, obviously, that's much more about other people, either in the sense of it's social, we're getting together, we're having a nice time. That's your sort of wits and wagers, cards against humanity, sort of party type games, or just because it's a game about the interaction with other people. Um, you know, the, 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 the standard there is obviously Risk, which I don't think is a great game, but it, it captures that multiplayer you know, dynamic turning against the leader and so on. Um, right. Settlers of Catan, obviously, being another uh, another classic of that genre. So, look, I, lo- I love both categories. I think in the in the, in the second category, uh, my kids are nine and eleven, so they're really hitting their stride in terms of games that are reasonably accessible. Um, we've been playing a lot of King of Tokyo late, lately, uh, which is a game that uh, I really enjoy. I enjoy the tone, but also it's like, I think got fairly good gameplay. It has difficult choices, which to me is the hallmark of a good game. There's a fantastic game which no one's ever heard of called Who Stole Ed's Pants, as you can tell from the title, pretty pretty light in tone as well, but also actually fairly rich gameplay. So um, I could go on and on, but those are some of my favorite games these days. Hmm. Well, with such a rich history in gaming, now I'm going to ask a question that may not be fair, but it'll be fun, <laughs> I'm sure, Right. which is uh, dig back and what's your single worst gaming experience? The worst game I've 
ever played. Not necessarily the game, but the the experience, the moment that was like, oh, that was just the worst. So, you know, there's nothing worse than a game that is all skill that you lose and that you deserve to lose. So, um, and this is not going to be a terribly creative answer, but I'm a fairly competitive chess player. And I, I tell you, losing at chess to a seven-year-old kid in a tournament <laughs> is probably the most ego deflating experience a grown man can have probably probably any person can have so that would have to go one category i think the other it's not really my worst gaming experience ever but um when we were play testing race to the white house uh i i lost a number of times to people who had never played before including to my nine-year-old son uh a, a handful of times and that's pretty deflating as well when it's actually your game and you are arguably the only person in the world who really understands it deeply and and, and you lose anyway uh that uh, for a competitive person that's that's pretty tough <laughs> now, does that say more about you or about the game <laughs> yeah definitely more about me i suspect <laughs> and the good news with race to the white house there's there's still enough serendipity involved that i can always you know blame the cards that came up or with my son, I can always tell myself I let him win, even though that really hasn't <laughs> happened. It makes you feel better. Right? Exactly. It makes me feel like a good parent instead of a sore loser. <laughs> there you go. Well, when did you make the transition from a game player to a game designer? Is that just recently or is that yeah. been always going? So in terms of putting the game together on a professional standard, that's, that's recent. So race to the white house is the first game, uh, that we've put together that I think, yeah, that's, you know, that's Kickstarter worthy, that's publication worthy, and we're spending real money to get it made. Mm-hmm. In, there's a way in which I've always been fascinated by game mechanics. And, you know, I've thought about, thought deeply about, you know, how do you think about two player games versus three player games? And how many different branching strategies should there be? And which should there be a dominant one or not? So I started experimenting with game design, golly, going back into probably my, my, my teenage years. I made a uh, hexagon-based war game based on a fictitious civil war in Australia right after World War One, which was the most notable thing about it. And this is ironic because I lived in Australia later for 10 years. But um, it, it showed a com- complete misunderstanding of how Australia worked. And so uh, you know, I had units running around in places that you couldn't possibly put, put military units in Australia. More recently, um, some of my good friends from childhood that I'm still in touch with uh, we've done a lot of tailoring and house rules of games to the point where they've almost become other games as well. A lot of chess variants. Uh, we've worked on uh, some word games um, and and, uh, and and other things. But having said that, Race to the White House is the first time we you know we hired the graphic designer. We had a really programmatic system uh, system of play testing. You know, we worked on it over a period of of, of, of two years. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well. So we've we've broached the subject of Race the White House. So let's go there a little bit deeper. And for those that aren't familiar with the game, can you give us the the description of it? Sure. So Race to the White House is a it's a it's a two player card and uh, board driven game uh, with a, with a, with a few dice rolls in it as well. It's a fairly strategically rich game. Um, so there's a fair bit. It's not it's not highly complex in that there aren't millions of special rules and so on but uh there are there there are a handful of different moves that lead to a lot of different possible combinations um it's a simulation as you could probably tell from the title of uh, a presidential election and we have a range of different candidates so you can do 2016 but also you can roll that back or indeed forward uh really as far as you want uh, by changing the candidate pool 
Mm-hmm. And the base and the reason I I put together this game and this was the game we decided to push forward is that it's the it's the tabletop game I've always wanted to play. So I've been looking for a good political election simulation. And it's surprisingly hard to do uh, in the United States. I think the mechanics of the Electoral College don't lend themselves uh, especially well to a game. So I spent a long time working on, on, on the underlying mechanic. So at the heart, we simulate the Electoral College. So there are 50 states. They're all at least notionally in play during the game. And what we do is we have a zero-sum way of tracking polling advantages uh, or disadvantages in any one state um, through the use of influence points. So if you have three red markers on a state, that means there's a three-point swing to the Republicans in the polls and so on. And on each turn, uh, first of all, it's very heavily card-driven, again, like a game like Twilight Struggle. So you draw cards, and those will allow you to play um, either advantages for you or disadvantages for your opponent. So you can collect an endorsement or... You can play a card that means your opponent's vice presidential candidate has had a psychotic break, and that has a number of other ramifications um, and and so on from there. Uh, You can fundraise, and that gives you money to spend on advertising, either national or local. And then, of course, you can campaign. So uh, you've got a certain number of action points each turn, and you move around the board, you hold rallies, and that leads to uh, to, to flow-on effects in terms of uh, your national and local standing. This will, again, date me somewhat, but the game it is most like for people who can reach back this far, there's a fantastic computer game uh, called President-Elect 1988, um, which I, I believe it's 8286 uh, compatible uh, for those of you who can still find your PC XTs uh, you know, somewhere up in the attic. And, and that's how it played. So you, you had a series of weeks. In, in this case, it's eight weeks. Uh, and you would, you would move around and you'd campaign and you essentially spend your time and you'd accumulate polling advantages in individual states. So it's an eight-week game. There are eight turns for each player. Uh, you know, you play your cards, you raise money, you advertise, you campaign, you build up hopefully a set of polling advantages in states. And there's a lot of richness as how do you gain and secure a lead, uh, and how you make a zero-sum game, how you introduce a bit of volatility in, uh, into it, and then that leads up to election night, where if you've done well and you're ahead in the polls, you will almost certainly win. But there is, again, an element of serendipity um, and dice rolling uh, that ultimately walks you through the Electoral College east to west, just like in a real election. And at the end of it, somebody's the president. Hmm. Well, you mentioned before that the hallmark of a truly great game is are the interesting decisions. So tell us what are those interesting decisions in Race to the White House? Yeah. So, uh, so great question. So my belief, well, in any game you have choices, and what I think makes a great game is when it's not obvious which of those choices is correct, and even when you understand the game deeply, it's not obvious which of those choices and combinations of choices are correct. Mm-hmm. So the first and biggest choice you have in Race the White House is how to spend your time as a candidate. And again, different candidates have different strengths and weaknesses, and we have environment cards that change the national mood and change your ability to do certain things on each turn. So this will be different from game to game. But one strategy, which popped up a lot during playtesting, was if you are a Hillary, if you're playing Hillary Clinton, she has an advantage in fundraising. Uh, some players found it advantageous simply to just spend the entire game fundraising and advertising. Now, we've, we've changed that through play balance a little bit. Um, other candidates are very powerful. Uh, the Ronald Reagan candidate is very powerful when actually campaigning, as uh, so is Barack Obama. And so an optimal strategy there is closer to spend time on the ground. Um, at the same time, you have to balance how you play the action cards in your hand. So 
they're action cards. You draw action cards for free. There are very powerful action cards that you can buy, but again, you have to spend you know, your, 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 your time to do that. And then you can put cards into certain combinations, which in turn are significantly more powerful. So there's, there's a card which is called Diddy Say Vince Foster, which is basically digging up an old scandal of your opponents, and that's got a certain impact. But if you play it with two other similar cards, you get the Wallowing in Sleaze combo, which is significantly more powerful than any of those individual cards. So how to hus- you know, card hand management is highly important. How you spend your time is highly important. And then within each individual state, there are some fairly rich dynamics around if you push far ahead in the polls, you can actually get to the point where you have momentum and it's hard to undo, but you can also reach a point of saturation. So knowing where to spend your time and how much time to spend in each state, if it, on any given turn, it doesn't feel that significant, but you watch a good player against a novice player and you will see them steadily building up very difficult to overcome advantages uh, in individual swing states. Hmm. Well, I want to talk about political games specifically because yeah. I've you know I've been watching Kickstarter for quite some time now, and it's very rare. Political games are frequent; they come up, you know, particularly right now because, of course, it's on the it's on the psyche. But they're very rarely are they very successful. Yes. Um, but yours appears to be so. So what? I guess a why are they not successful? And b what is, what is different about Race to the White House that makes it successful? Yeah, no, it's 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 a great question. Look, I think politics is difficult to simulate in an entertaining way, mm-hmm. and I think that's for a couple of reasons. One is, again, if you're looking at a presidential election, which is what most political games out there uh, focus on, I haven't seen you know race to the school board out, but I'm I'm excited <laughs> when it comes out. I'll, I'll that's I'll, your sequel, right? Yeah, that's absolutely, the absolutely. Uh, and the, the top tier pledges is uh, is is a very exciting one. You'll 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 love the uh, stretch goals we've got there. Um, <laughs> so they tend to be presidential elections. So in a presidential election, you either have to simulate all fifty states within the electoral college, and it is difficult to get that me- game mechanic right, or you have to abstract it so deeply. That to be honest, it's not doesn't really feel like an election game anymore, right? So if you're a political junkie as I am, you follow what's happening in Ohio versus in Pennsylvania versus in Florida versus in Colorado. So as a game designer, you have to find a way to capture that state by state richness, but at the same time, make the game playable and also make it interesting. Um, I think in in the very early versions when we were looking at different game mechanics, we found there are a lot of ways to set up this game where basically one person spends their money in Ohio and they get a polling advantage and the other person spends their money and and, and they take it right back. So we've introduced some asymmetry into how those things work that I think it make make it much richer. So I think that's why these games are tough uh, to get up and running and get funded. I think we've done a couple of things uh, that are a bit different. One is, I think we just hit on a, a great game dynamic. So the way that we track individual states is very simple. So you're not there with a lot of paper. You're not there trying to kind of, uh, you know, sort of keep track with piles of counters and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's a very simple counter system so that you're ahead two points in Ohio, or you're behind two points in Florida. Um, and, and and I think that that mechanic has been worked out and, it's, and just it just plays smoothly. I think the second thing that we've done is the game is just, it's fun to look at and the cards are fun to play. So uh, we've spent a lot of money on graphic design. Uh, we've had a professional team uh, working through all the cards and the board um, and the candidate cards uh, and, and, and so on. And then we've also spent a lot of time, I'm always worried when people say a game is funny because 
you know, usually it can often be quite slapstick humor, but the game is a quite, it's, it's, it's got a very strong voice. It's got a kind of a quirky, ironic tone. You know, I talked about the, the Vince Foster card. I talked about uh, the opponent having a psychotic break card. We're actually, this morning we, we, we put another card in, in, in production about uh, Melania Trump and, and, and her convention speech. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, people who have no interest in games pick up the deck of cards and they read them and they, and, 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 and they enjoy that. And I think that's been mm. a big driver of our success as well. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say that this game appeals to both traditional gamers as well as people who aren't so interested in game, but they're more political junkies? Like, have you had a chance to play it with political junkies who aren't really gamers and, and seen their reaction? It'd probably be smart for me to say that. Uh, so yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Um, also, Absolutely. It also appeals to old people, to children, animals um rich people especially yeah, exactly people who enjoy backing at the upper tiers on kickstarter um yes. so i'd say i i do think it genuinely appeals to both i think deep ga- gamers will get more out of this game uh than political junkies just because it is a you know it's a, it's a rich strategic game and if all you if, if you're interested in politics but not games i think someone can ha- hold your hand and take you through the mechanics and you may enjoy you know you'll you'll like the cards you'll like the you know the jokes and so on do you want to spend you know sort of you know an hour playing a deep strategic game over and over and over i, I don't know if any game would do that um, i think it's a great let me put it this way i think gamers will love it i think it's a great gift for the political junkie in your life that's uh, that's my best offer that's pretty good that's yeah. pretty good well, let's talk about your campaign. Um, let's see, you've been live for, what, two weeks? Yeah. About like that? Yeah, something like that. Yep. How, how are things going? So things are going great. So we funded within four hours, which... That's uh, amazing. Which, yeah, was, was, a, was a pleasant surprise. And I think um, uh, that gave us a lot of momentum, and that helps you in the Kickstarter uh, rankings and so on. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, we you know, sort of lined up uh, folks we knew, and, and we did a lot of, you know, essentially pre-selling with with dedicated gamers and we sent out a lot of review copies and 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 that sort of thing so that mm-hmm. helped very much uh for when we launched but the pledges have just kept rolling in since then so we're now we just crossed over 300 percent funded today wow. so we feel good about that um you know and they're and they're they, they they continue to come in so um i don't know uh bit of luck, bit of skill. Um, I think the, the, the combination has worked well for us and we're, we're really pleased to be in this situation, obviously. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, you know, I think you're, at least I, as a connoisseur of Kickstarter, I'm always a little bit skeptical of those campaigns that just, you know, are at 300%. And then I, it makes you wonder, well, did they really just peg a really low goal so they could just bust through it really quick? And so, you know, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, yes, we did. So that was part of the strategy. <laughs> Look, I, the, the the question I asked myself is: I spent two years of my life on this game, and uh, I have a very dedicated co-creator, Samantha Paul, who spent an enormous amount of time on this game as well. And you know, the question you also want to ask yourself is: if if I fell a hundred dollars short of this target, would I would I wish I'd set the target a hundred dollars lower? Um, and <laughs> The answer to that keeps on becoming yes and yes until you get to the point where you think, you know, I'm actually going to lose money on the manufacturing of this game. So for us, $3,000 is where we thought we needed to be to make the game and feel good about it. And to be honest, I wouldn't have felt good about it at $2,000. Um, we hoped we'd raise more. Uh, we, we have raised more. And, you know, I'd love to cross through. We've got stretch goals at 10 and 15 and 25 and 50. Um, 
so I, 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 I hope it keeps on going. But, but 3,000 was what we felt really the minimum we felt. Um, mm. I would also say that I, I'd like to you know, take this moment to announce a new stretch goal as well, live on your podcast, which is- Oh, at, boy. Yeah, I know. I know. This is pretty Breaking. exciting stuff. The website will be updated when, when this goes live. But uh, if we can raise $600 million, we will <laughs> actually run one of you guys, one of the backers for president. So- <laughs> It's That's not, it, 600, yeah, 600 million. Yeah, I think it's about what we need. So it's an audacious okay. goal. But um, listen, if we can get people to chip in and get the $600 million, then uh, uh, you know, I think we could, we could really have a significant impact here. Wow. Well, you know, this is, this is the season to do it. So, and I, I know quite a few people who are clamoring for an, a third-party candidate to get behind. So. Yes, yes, exactly. This could be it. Let's and, make it happen. Yeah, I think, and we'll just select someone at random. Um, that, <laughs> that's how the Russian Orthodox Church used to appoint its uh, its its leader. You'd put all the names in a hat, and you'd pick one out. I think um, I don't know why that that the tradition has fallen by the wayside. We need to uh, right. you know pick that up again. Well, I know quite a few people who who would swear that that will result in a much better candidate than what we're seeing right now. So that Ted sounds Cruz, pretty good. I think it was Ted Cruz's roommate who said, I'd rather open up the yellow pages and randomly stick a pin on a page and have that person be president than Ted Cruz. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you may, you, you, you may well have something there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, you know, you, you talked about hitting your goal in four hours. Fantastic. Amazing. You talked a little bit about what that took but I guess get more specific about your promotion strategies thus far. What have you been doing? What's been working? What hasn't been working? Yeah, so I, I, we, we've done a few things. So I think the core for any Kickstarter campaign, unless you are so well-known that uh, you know people will, will, will flock to you as soon as you go up, and that describes a very, very small number of people, is always going to be friends and family. So, uh, you know, Samantha and I have, you know, spent a lot of time rounding up our friends and cousins and ex-lovers and enemies and, uh, uh, you know, former pets and that sort of thing. And just made sure that, uh, you know, to the extent that people were willing, that people were at least aware of this and that we told them that we'd, we'd very much appreciate their support. And that's been extremely gratifying how much of that uh, support we've gotten. The second thing we've done is a lot of outreach into the game community. So, you know, the gaming community is a fairly broad one. You know, it's fairly widespread. So it's not as if there's one person where you can send them a copy and if they, they love it, you're done. But there are 100 people where you can send them a copy. And if they like it, you know, sort of you'll get a few games out of, uh, out of each of those. So we spend a lot of time talking to that, you know, going to, you know, local gaming groups in our areas and so on. Um, and then we've done a little bit of targeted advertising. It's always uh, a bit hard to know whether that's uh, that's paying for itself or not. Um, we've done some uh, advertising on Facebook. We did a tiny bit on Google. I don't think that was terribly helpful. We're going up on Board Game Geek uh, shortly. Hmm. So I think you, if you put those three things together, and then if your campaign funds and you have momentum, then also I think that just folks who are coming to Kickstarter looking looking for something. We've had a, a some, gratifyingly strong response from those people as well. Lots of people have backed us who don't know us from Adam, but they've backed, you know, 60 projects on Kickstarter. Um, So, and that starts to build on itself as well. So I think those, all those different elements together have really, uh, you know, helped us uh, be successful. Mm -hmm. Well, with hitting 300% funding, what's keeping you up at night? Anything? So... Look, I, I think we're in a pretty good position. Uh, you do hear, you know, there, there, are, there are questions we haven't quite resolved about, uh, you know, some of the details of manufacturing. And so there's always the risk that, you know, you, your game board ends up not fitting in your box when you fold it up or, 
or, or something like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have to make sure that we're, we're, we're buttoned down there. Um, I guess the, the biggest question on my mind is how people will like the game once they've got it. Um, you know, we've put a lot, it's, it's as gratifying it is as it is to reach a Kickstarter goal, overachieve it, you know, by a significant degree and put a game out there, you know, in, in the world. I very much hope, you know, I love this game, right? I put two years of blood, sweat, and tears into it. And I hope that everybody out there loves it as much as I do. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really kind of keen as people play it through prototypes and beta testing and print and plays. I'm always keen to see their feedback. And so far, the response has been extremely positive. Uh, we'll know a lot more, obviously, after we get, you know, several hundred copies in the uh, in the hands of the world and, and see how people like it. All right. All right. Well, along those notes, uh, what is next for Race the White House? Uh, so in terms of for the game itself? Um, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to we'll wrap up the Kickstarter campaign in a couple of weeks here. And uh, off the back of that, we'll, you know, we'll probably have some work to do in implementing all, all the stretch goals uh, that we've met and continue to and, and hope to continue to meet. Um, and really, uh, I mean, that's the, the game is designed and it's done. Um, we've got our manufacturing quote in hand. So we'll need to do a little bit of tidy up work around implementing the stretch goals and some of the special things for the upper level print uh, print tiers. Um, the one thing we haven't done is at the at the hundred dollar pledge level, you get the Race to the White House huge edition, which is exactly like the regular edition, but the Donald Trump card is nine times the regular size of all the other <laughs> candidate cards, and uh, and it's and it's you know it's a really high class, high quality card, the best the best card there is. So we haven't we haven't done that yet. You know we need to get our A team on the uh, on the huge edition. Right. Um, after that, we you know we press go on manufacturing, and uh, you know get those games out there. And then uh, we're, we're hopeful that uh, there'll be enough continued demand that we'll do a slightly larger print run and we'll keep all the dies and tooling so that, uh, you know, if we're in a position to, to reorder, down, reorder down the road, that uh, that we'll be able to do so. But we're very much hoping that uh, people are interested in the game. Pledge on Kickstarter. Um, it's less expensive on Kickstarter than it will be on Amazon. And there's some Kickstarter-only exclusives. So for anyone who's considering uh, looking at the game, now is absolutely the time to do so. Mm-hmm. What about what's next for bipartisan games? Yeah, I was thinking about that just before uh, just before this podcast, and I thought I should very quickly design our next game just to have uh, <laughs> uh, have something else to talk about. Look, I think um, this has been a very uh, resource intensive game uh, in terms of the the, the the level of graphic design and uh, <laughs> the cost. To put it very very candidly. So, um, with the, uh, the, the 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 profit from this one, I think the next game will be a slightly quicker and simpler game uh, that's that that's that's much more card driven may or may not be a political theme despite the name bipartisan games we're a uh, we're a wide-ranging uh, game company so watch this space okay well what advice do you have for an aspiring game designer he's hoping to knock it out of the park with his first Kickstarter project what are you gonna tell him yeah well look I think the um, the first thing I'd say is make a good game right so uh, you <laughs> oh, know, it's that easy yeah, no, it's it's not easy, right? And I think a lot of people, it's easy to feel like if you've got something that looks like a game that you've got and, and your friends can get around and spend time on it, that it's that's that's a great game. I guess my advice is if you haven't spent your whole life kind of mentally redesigning games that you're playing and thinking about how they could be better, then you may not be interested enough in game design to make a game. You know, I I think about games all the time. You know, when I'm playing them, when I'm playing somebody else's game, when I'm not playing games. So I think you know you, you want to bring that level of passion uh, to the project. Um, the other thing I'd say is 
people you know, just need to get their playtesting really, really done. There's nothing that's tougher. And you see this in professionally published games all the time where there's just a dominant strategy that emerges the fifth time you play the game and you think you know, mm-hmm. this, this could have been spotted and adjusted. And we spent a huge amount of time on Race to the White House adjusting those dominant strategies. I guess that the, the third thing is make sure your game is done. You know, you see a lot of stuff where people have printed stuff out on slips of paper and it's, it's, it's just not the same. Um, right. And uh, I, I, well, actually, I think that's about it. I think you have a great game that plays well and looks great. You know, hopefully you're in a position to, uh, to be successful. I think the game, the world needs as many great games as it can, uh, as, as it can get. All right. Well said. Well, Jamie, I have to confess something to you. Which is yes. this whole podcast exists for only one reason, which is to play the game design challenge. I'm ready. Okay, golly. <laughs> okay. Well, here's how this works. You I'm going do some to push up quickly to get in shape. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You got to do some jumping jacks. Get get the blood flowing. Yeah. You're going to need it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to pick a random game theme. Yes. I'm going to give that to you, and then you're going to chew it over, think about it, preferably out loud, since this is a podcast, mm-hmm. and then. Pitch back to me what that game might be, how it might work. Okay, I'm I'm ready. You're good for that. Yeah. Okay, so let me see if I can find a good theme here. And your theme is going to be spies for hire. Spies for hire. Right. Okay, so the fact that it's spies plural and the fact that there's hiring involved means that, to me, this is naturally a multiplayer game, right? Okay. So it's not going to be about uh, – it's going to be much more about the hiring, kind of the marketplace, sort of a dynamic auction-type game, less okay, about so – Less about like a twenty-page rule book and so on. Right, right. So I think this is economics. Uh, well, it's not. It's not really going to feel like an economics game, but it's going to be much more about kind of this 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 this, this hiring process. So okay. the way I'm thinking about this is it's 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 a multiplayer game with a slightly party type feel to it. So I think it's ideally, let's call it four to six players, and each player simultaneously represents a national government and also represents a international spy for hire. And as the government, you've got a set of objectives, which are hidden. There's a deck of 20 objective cards, and you draw three of them. So one of them might be to, you know, take the lead in mobile phone technology. And another one might be triple agricultural output. Another one might be, you know, develop an intercontinental ballistic missile. So to do – so you've got those secret objectives. You've got a certain amount of money. And then – Two things happen. You turn over a series of mission cards. There's a mission. There's a deck of sixty mission cards, and those cards are things like kidnap top scientist or steal prototype fighter jet or you know infiltrate laboratory or something like that. So they don't necessarily tie back directly to the objectives. Mm-hmm. The card the, the the card gets turned up. Uh, you 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 turn that card up, and then each nation bids on that mission card. So if you're trying to launch an ICBM, you might want to kidnap an international scientist because that's going to help you uh, right. help you do that. Then the, the, the nation that has bought the card then puts that out to tender. Now, everybody is also a spy. Each spy has three attribute cards from a separate deck. So might be, I have seven in stealth, but only a two in social graces or what have you. That'll determine your probability of achieving or failing on the mission. 
Each spy then bids to perform that mission for the national government, both by talking about their price as well as bragging about their attributes, but they have to do it without Mm. showing their attribute card. So there's then an auction process, both for the mission and then to hire the spy that goes on the mission. If you're successful as a nation, then you get whatever the benefit from that mission was. You get the scientist who gives you two out of your four science points for the ICBM project. Mm-hmm. Um, that keeps going. Uh, and then what? one of two things happens. Either you run out of money as a nation, in which case you can't bid for missions, and you have to try to get more money back as a spy because it's a closed system. The money never leaves. Or once you achieve your three objectives, you turn them over, you line them up with your mission cards, uh, and you win the game. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have to ask right off the bat, how did you do that? (laughs) Have you been working on this game? I mean, just be honest here because you didn't even pause for a moment. Yeah. um, So I I actually have a small camera uh, based in your studio and I saw the (laughs) notes on your your, your pad. I hope that doesn't feel at all intrusive. Oh, not at all. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I, I, I love games. I think they're basically, I'm making this number up, but it's called eight to 10 core game mechanics. I think within any game theme, you're really matching up a few key variables. One is what's the core mechanic. One is what's the number of players. The other one is what's sort of the, what's sort of the tone of the game. Um, and once you've made those decisions, the rest of it is just sort of filling in details. Wow. You, you just designed not only Spies for Hire the game, but I think you just designed designing games the game. <laughs> you know, you've actually given me, I, I'm actually kind of intrigued by the Spies for Hire game. Maybe we should go in on that together after a race to the White House. Is, uh, hey, I am all for that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really fun, actually. <laughs> Fantastic. Because you, know, you have a little bit of a social element there, a little bit, you know, because a little bit of like trying to sell people on your spy, but a little bit of, you know, you got some blind bidding going on or, you know, some yeah, economics. It's sort of a, exactly. It's sort of a bidding and bluffing game, right? It's kind of social. Right. It's strategic, but it's not, it's not sort of something that rewards OCD study of the rules. It's much more right. about reading the players and trying to figure out where folks are coming from. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm totally sold. Right. Just let me know when that goes up on Kickstarter. Yeah, no, we're, yeah no, we're in. Uh, March 15th <laughs> next year, it's, uh, it's going live. Okay. You already got the pages up and everything. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie, it's been a, just a pleasure speaking with you this evening. Oh, fantastic. I, it's, it's been great to talk to you as well. I'm a uh, big fan of the show and uh, uh, oh. delighted to have the chance to you know, talk to you, talk about the firm, and uh, talk about Race to the White House. Great, great. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Race to the White House, best of luck uh, for the remainder of your campaign. Thank you. Well, there you have it, episode 25, with your guest Jamie Twiss of Bipartisan Games and their exciting new game currently on Kickstarter, Race to the White House. This episode of Your Tables on Fire has been brought to you by Word Domination, the upcoming word game and area control game by Uproarious Games. They plan to have it up on Kickstarter August 23rd. Right now you can go check it out at www.worddomination.net. Thanks for listening to Your Tables on Fire. You can follow us on Twitter at TableFire. And also check out our website, www.yourtablesonfire.com. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and BoardGameGeek. Check out any of those websites and give us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Well, until next time, go light it up. Man.